Oh, 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 yes, yes. How, how, <laughs> I feel like we should be uh, having our, on to our brandy and cigars at this point, Lindsay. How you feeling tonight? Fine glass of sherry, perhaps. I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm doing great. Oh, let me just say before we kick off this third session of Book Club for The Devil in the White City by Eric Larson, I just have to say, hold on, that's not your name. I'll get that up soon. Um, I just have to say that I think it is, I don't know, it's one of the first Fridays or first Mondays in September. I'm having a friend of mine, he's a, he's a regular on the show, Jay Gulinello, he's a nutritionist. He's coming in to sit in on a show with my friend, it's, it's probably a Friday night. And I told him, I told him, listen, we're going to be doing a couple different topics, but one thing you've got to do, look at this menu from all the architects and engineers that got together uh, that we're talking about how they're going to lay out this brilliant white city in the middle of this sandy bog over there in Jackson Park in Chicago. I want you to look at the menu for this lunch that they had, and I need you to prepare an entire macronutrient report on what they did to their bodies that day. So yeah. you've got to make sure that you 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 gotta you gotta make sure to look in on that one. Oh, I love that. It's so rich. I really like don't think I could do it, but I'm so I've like pared things down so much. I just did a 44 hour fast. So I just broke my 44 hour fast today. So eating anything like this would just make me, I think, vomit everywhere. Well, we Any of them would be fine on their own, but like the whole combination, the whole spread is crazy. Well, we got another. We, did you see it? You had to yeah. have seen it. We got another menu on page 219, uh, the final preparations. What do they say? Uh, this was a, the, the, despite the carpenter's strike and all the work yet to be done, Burnham felt optimistic. His mood bolstered by the fine weather. The winter had uh, had been deep and long, but now the air was scented with first blossoms and thawed earth. And of course, they all got together and they ate like gods. And they gave us the menu. And again, you need a uh, you, you need like a you know a Google Translate for most of this stuff. It's just my. Gosh, <laughs> I just, it's just incredible. I mean, look, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, nine rounds. And the last round is all cheeses, cigars, and, and whiskeys or cognacs or whatever, <laughs> you know? Cordials. It's, it's pretty intense. What is, a cor uh, yeah. what is a cordial? I thought a cordial was like a small bite of, of something, but I don't know for sure. Okay. I have to see, I think that, I thought that sorbet was part of a dessert yeah or is that and then just it's like romaine something and cigarettes <laughs> somebody told me that sorbets are actually are actually just there to clean your palate for the next round oh like it's almost like you know a little bit of lemon or something like that that makes sense or like a little bite of mint or what do they usually put on our plates now it's um parsley Yes, something like that. Does any, anybody in the chat room can give us a little bit of confirmation on the cordial and whether or not the sorbet does have that function of cleansing the palate in between uh, rounds and servings? That would that would be wonderful. Um, but as but far... Potatoes on here like six times. Palms is potatoes, right? <laughs> They're like palms is all over the place. Well, I'm it, probably saying that wrong, too. Well, what is poisson? What is, what the, is, that, is that seafood? Is that something like poisson. that? That's from Little Mermaid. Le poisson, le poisson, le poisson. Ready? Remember? Yeah, I think it's fish and hollandaise sauce and potatoes of some kind. <laughs> the fish. The That's <laughs> not even the main entree. <laughs> I know. Well, listen, they were corpulent men, and they all had problems. Yes. 
They were all had they all had problems, ladies and gentlemen. I mean, uh, let, let's just some general thoughts about this. It is all managing timeline. A mad dash to build this city out of nothing. And what we see throughout the entire thing is the the upping the ante of how many 2,000 men working at a time, 10,000 men working at a time. At one point in the in the, re, the assigned reading, it talks about 20,000 people working at a time to get these buildings up. And as, as, as quick as they're coming up, uh, a storm comes through and knocks it down, uh, rain pouring through the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts building. It's just nonstop rain. I, I thought that we only had climate change issues over here in the yeah. 21st century, but my gosh, Lindsay, there is just, I, I just don't know how the hell they did it. But uh, so between all of the, we'll get into the details, and we'll get into the thread, but between all of the details of trying to get this thing completed, um, finally settling on how to out Eiffel Eiffel with uh, George Washington Ferris. Um, we have we have the more and more the brutality and just this bottomless feeling of sick, I don't know, sick to my stomach every time it's a Holmes chapter because I just know some poor fool is going to be on a slab somewhere having their skin peeled off and uh, oh god uh, you go ahead give me your thoughts on this well you know what i was thinking about that too is the uh, and at some point in this book there's sort of an accounting of like what we know for sure he did or seemed to know for sure that he killed but remember when even when he was building this house of horror um he asked somebody like well hey if you kill him you know if you drop a thing on his head i'll give you 50 bucks or whatever yeah and it's like how many people did he just even sort of like casually kill or get someone else to kill like the, i don't think this accounting is anywhere near what he actually did in his life who who would ever know most of who he could have killed throughout this time you know so it's it gets really really dark I, it was interesting, too, right at that beginning, the angel from Dwight part where he sends his man to go get cured for alcoholism by this, like, snake oil cure, it sounds like. Apparently it worked, but who knows if it was placebo or not. Um, and all of the reasons he sent him, too, right? Like, he's like, well, I actually do need him to not drink so much. Uh, but I also want to get a report on, like, what this cure is so I can sell it in my own business where I'm literally selling just snake oils to everybody all over the place in my mail order scam. And then I also perhaps want to maybe, like, I don't know if this part was intentional or not, but draw in yet another victim. In this case, it ended up being, what was it, Emmeline Sigrand, mm -hmm. if that's how you say her name. I don't know if that was part of the plan or not, or if that was just like a happy accident for him. Um, but she nearly made it. Like, just like the uncle who was like, I didn't go upstairs with him and I kept my door locked, right? She nearly made it. She fell in love with him, was courted by him, got swept away by him, just thought he was the best and most amazing. And, and then came and said to who was the other person who lives there in the house of horror with her. I forget her name, Mrs. Something or another. And she, is it the Lawrences, right? Yeah. yeah the Lawrences. And she says like, uh, oh, I'm, he can get along fine without me. Like, I'm out of here. Like, she has that inclination, and then he still gets her. You know, the, uh, I think it was, um, I think it was uh, em Emmeline. She was the one that we all get the, the, the picture of her dying in the vault. 
right? Yeah. Now, yeah. That, I remember the first time I read this a couple of years ago. That just left me, I mean, it always leaves me with a sick, horrendous feeling in my stomach. But the fact that they had you so close, so close, and they said that the woman in the vault was definitely shoeless at the time, perhaps even nude, and that Holmes then had closed the airtight door to lock her inside. She had left the print, a footprint, on the door. She had left the footprint in last hope, last hopeless effort to force the door open to explain the print, the print's permanence. Detectives theorize that Holmes, known to have had uh, avid interest in chemistry, had first poured a sheen of acid onto the floor to hasten, by chemical reaction, the consumption of oxygen in the vault. The theory held that Emmeline had stepped into the acid, then placed her feet against the door, thus literally etching the print into the enamel. But again, this revelation came much later. As of the start of 1893, the year of the fair, no one, including Holmes, had noticed the footprint on the door. And just, um, this is just more about the, more about the preying upon young women who are unlike Jack the Ripper, they say, that, that he was going after prostitutes. Uh, he's going, looking at women in transition in their life, coming out to live in the big city. And, uh, and of course, there's just so many new people in Chicago that it, it, it it's like it's almost like popping bubbles you never knew that they were there in the first place and um and that goes on the the scheming continues he continues to get more and more indebted to people and more and more uh in, tangled up in people's lives but he's working under an incredible array of aliases and he says it it says even at one point that he felt that his time in chicago was drawing to to a a clothes and one of the last people that we are um that were at least in this reading that we are introduced to is minnie poor minnie who was uh, literally floating around in a fictional existence from the get-go signed over all of her all of her inheritance and everything to this man uh, under again assumed identities and names, and it's just one thing after another. I feel I feel bad too because they describe Minnie like she was pretty plain. She's not very pretty, and so when a handsome, you know, wealthy man comes into her life, it seems to her like she's struck gold, and this is the lottery. And you know, and and these people, psychopaths, are super convincing, and so you don't even question. Like, of course they love me. They think I'm amazing. They know all these things about me more than anyone's ever known. They pay more attention than anyone's ever paid. You know, but you do have to ask yourself. I remember. <laughs> I, I was uh, I had a therapist for a while and I was telling her about my new boyfriend that I had met and I was describing him and she was like hmm she was like what's the catch and I was like what do you mean she's like oh he's like wealthy and he has this and he has this and he's super handsome and all this stuff and she's like is he short and I was like uh he's like an inch taller than me and she's like oh okay that's it he's short and I was like what the hell is going on here and she was like I'm not trying to be rude I'm not saying you're not worth it I'm saying men who have all of that don't normally go for you know relatively plain women he could get someone way better unless he's short i was like wow i wish actually that we taught each other things like this because minnie could have been spared if she understood like no you're not going to get a guy like that actually and if someone like that is after you you should ask questions about why perhaps including when they want you to sign over the deed to your property and all of that money is just suddenly not yours anymore you wouldn't fall into traps like that that may sound like pretty harsh, but it's actually relatively true in the world. People go for their their sort of tier, like people know what they're at, you know? Yeah, and her sister knew. 
You know, uh, not, not yeah. that her sister didn't love her, but she's wondering. Listen, you know, Minnie is. Uh, she's not a she's not a looker. She's not a, she's not a uh, a traffic stopper. What is this all about? And of course, uh, her inherited land in Texas is gone now. Um, but you know, um, there, there's more to that. I'm sure that we'll get around to with whatever people are su- are submitting in the in the thread here. But going back to the fair, I wanted to put a little bit of attention on what. Finally, now we have the big reveal of what was chosen to out Eiffel the Eiffel Tower. Now you guys and gals know, anytime that you make your way down Ocean Boulevard in Myrtle Beach or anywhere else around this country that has a, you know, a, a third-rate carnival pop up out of nowhere and there is a tiny little Ferris wheel, a tiny little dinky Ferris wheel that you would not trust anybody to operate, no matter how small it is, just know it all came from this man, George Washington Gale Ferris. And the, it's the enormity. You think about the, I mean, uh, Playland in Rye over here by us, Long Island Sound, it has a, it's always had a pretty sizable Ferris wheel. But let's just think about this for a second. This is on page 185. Nowhere in this letter, however, did he reveal the true dimension of his, of his vision, that this wheel would carry 36 cars each about the size of a Pullman, each holding 60 people. And I mean, have you, Lindsay, have you ever been in a Ferris wheel that the, it it held more than four people? No. This is like a a city bus. We're talking about, (laughs) I mean, we're talking about, it's just incredible, the size, holding each 60 people equipped with its own lunch counter and how, when filled to capacity, when the wheel would be would would uh, the wheel would uh, propel two thousand one hundred sixty people at a time, three hundred feet into the air over Jackson Park, a bit higher than the crown of the now sixty-year-old Statue of Liberty, twenty-one hundred people on this Ferris wheel, the first one, and you think about the rickety old little things that are popping up in carnivals all over the country right now, that this was the first one. It is incredible. It's incredible. I can't even imagine, and at that time, this is, yeah, taller than the Statue of Liberty already, was only six years old, and this is, uh, you know, I, I don't go on Ferris wheels, like, because they're so rickety and annoying. I will go on, like, the zipper and all sorts of other, but I will not go on Ferris wheels because they just seem to me like they're going to fall apart, like they're the least cared about or given attention to, right, in the whole fair. So I don't go on those things. But Seattle, where I'm from, you know, originally got its big, I don't even remember what we call it now. It's I know the London one is, like, the big eye or something. We have our huge Ferris wheel, and when you get in it, it is like a little car, it feels much safer, honestly, so I was willing to do it. But you can have, like, six people or maybe more in one car. Um, and that alone, like, that bothered me. But to have, what, 60? Is that what it said? 60 uh, people in a car? 60 people in a car. And no. at, at, at ma- <laughs> maximum capacity, 2,100 people. That's and, insane. Yeah, well, well, and then also think of the ascent toward the top and what you're able to see at that point. I mean, you're committing a good amount of time on this thing. It's not as as of a thr- as big of a thrill ride as we we all see it. And uh, Krista in the chat room just said she's bragged about the Ferris wheel since she was a kid because Ferris was from her neighborhood because he is he is a Pittsburgh guy. Uh- so you have a. Uh, 
that's something, another thing that people from Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania, uh, another feather that they can put in their cap right there. It's, um, it's a big deal. It really is. It really, really is. There's so many, uh, so many other things going on here. We got a list of the exhibits. Obviously, there's a little bit more on Annie Oakley and the incredible, the incredible work that um, Wild Bill was doing outside of the fairgrounds. I, I'm trying to get all this stuff. I I, I lost all my my uh, spaces, but there's there's other things here too. Um, I love how Bloom. We we check in with Bloom over here, who he's he's you know he's got the the job of marketing this whole thing and making it a little bit more accessible to people, and how he never got the copyright. Never got the copyright for the tune that we all know. That the fact that that was from him too. Yes. It's, it's so, man, that would have been. There's so many golden nuggets like that in here where you're just like, oh my god, all of us know this, but we didn't know why unless you read something like this and find out. I also love about Bloom. <laughs> there was that thing. Was that? Yeah, here we go. On page 173, the Algerians, uh, is it the Algerians that showed up a year early? Yes. I think it is, them. And uh, they had the wrong year, so they're getting there a year early, and they're getting off the boat. And it says, as the Algerians left the ship, they began moving in all directions at once. I could see them getting lost, being run over, and landing in jail, Bloom said. No one seemed to be in charge. Bloom raced up to them, shouting commands in French and English. A giant black-complected man walked up to Bloom in perfect House of Lords English, said, I suggest you be more civil, otherwise I may lose my temper and throw you into the water. <laughs> the man identified himself as Archie, and the two settled into a more peaceful conversation. And eventually, Bloom hands him a cigar, proposes that he become his bodyguard and assistant, and your offer, Archie said, is quite satisfactory. So they just smoke cigars together. So they're like getting off the ship a year early. There's this culture clash and whatever. And then he's like, actually, you, know what? you, you could be my bodyguard. You're a, you are, you're a fine standing man here. Let's do this. There's more. Uh, let's see. Perfect English. Like perfect. just unexpected. I can't imagine just how many culture clashes were going on at this time with all of these people coming from everywhere to here. Um, you know, we see later there's also the uproar about the the dancing the belly dancing yes you know, but but it was scandalous women <laughs> but but it was it, it was an excuse to see something scandalous and have it be more cultured in in artistic and in, in, let's see here the at the manufacturers liberal arts building workers employed by contractor francis agnew began the dangerous process of raising the giant iron trusses that would ha would support the building's roof and create the wild the widest span of unobstructed interior space ever attempted the workers installed three sets of parallel railroad tracks along the length of the of the building atop these on rail car wheels or trucks they erected a traveler, a giant derrick consisting of three tall towers spanned at the top by a platform. Workers using the traveler could lift any position two trusses at a time. George Post's design called for 22 trusses, each weighing 200 tons, each getting a components to the uh, components to the park by uh, had required 600 rail cars. So you think about uh, all throughout these chapters that we read this time around. We're getting more example of size, just how gigantic everything was planned to uh, was planned out as being, and of course, not enough time of doing it. I mean, there's just um, there's so many examples of that in here, and then of course in the background, the like that third 
big storyline in the background is who what is this Prendergast this Prendergast guy doing he's getting crazier and crazier now he believes that because uh, Mayor Harrison looks like he is going to ascend to the role of uh, mayor for a fifth time over there in Chicago um, he has he's deluded enough to thinking that he actually had a reason he it was the he was the reason why that the mayor was elected and that certainly he was going to be rewarded for his service and given a uh, a job to do some kind of prestigious position inside of his administration which we all know he doesn't even know he exists but this is a crazed man i think we can all see where this is heading uh when he when he suddenly and will uh, eventually feel um, a little gypped that he has not been given that uh the, the the righteous the righteous uh i don't know thanks or anything like that but uh those are all the pieces without getting into the details those are all the pieces that we have working for us right now unless Lindsay, you think i have forgotten something huge which i probably have i think you've got all of the main you know themes and and happenings of this section um i just when you were describing that liberal arts building and the the traveler I didn't really put it together when I was reading it, but the, is that not like the maybe the first time that when up in Washington again we have all these big lumber yards and there's just massive amounts of trees and so they've got these rail tracks and this giant machine like runs along these tracks and it's got an arm and it can like pick up a lot of trees at once and move them across the yard. It sounds like the same sort of design and I just feel like so many things were invented for this fair. So many things were invented to get this all done on time that I wonder if that's where it even came from. Um, when you were talking about that, that's what I was thinking. And then I was also thinking about how right after that, the liberal arts building itself collapses again. Well, uh, like, this is like the third time I think it's collapsed. Yeah, it, major portions of it, at least. And as you were it, yeah. as you were reading that, I was trying to find the section that gave a little bit more of uh, on dedication day of oh. j- just how many people were fit inside of this thing, just how huge the crowd was. And uh, to the point where they needed special sign language for people to, or uh, you know, signals for people to know when a person is speaking or or when the the, the music in the band to stop playing. It's just uh, it's all over the yeah. place. But it's I got on page one eighty one, uh, and that is also where the we learned that the flag salute was first designed, you know, written and and performed. I guess it's it wasn't even a part of our our world until then, which is also really interesting it's somewhat late it's not that long ago that it was created and that we all know it we all say it by heart it's a little bit difference uh i pledge allegiance to my flag and to the republic for which it stands we've added a bit more since then <laughs> but it's basically the flag salute um but yeah 140,000 chicagoans filled 32 acre a 32 acre floor and just for a li- how big that building is 32 acres i mean just uh, just for a little <laughs> a little uh, even modern day examples like when when the cowboys the dallas cowboys built their their new stadium i don't know it's it's at least 10 years old now uh I know college stadiums are even bigger than NFL stadiums, and they, on average, I mean, you, you'll you'll see them anywhere between eighty and a hundred thousand seats. And to think that you could have a hundred thousand people in there, plus another Yankee Stadium full of people on top of it, and wow. it's just this is just a massive, <laughs> a, a massive amount of people. Shafts of sunlight struck through the rising mist of human breath. 
5,000 yellow chairs stood on the red carpeted speaker's platform, and in these chairs sat businessmen dressed in black and foreign uh, commissioners and clerics in scarlet, purple, green, and gold. Ex-Mayor Carter Harrison, again running for a fifth term, strode around uh, shaking hands. I mean, it, it, it was huge. There's more on page 207, dreadful things done by the girls. Um, From Baltimore came a long, dark train that chilled the hearts of the men and women who monitored its passage across the prairie, but delighted the innumerable small boys who raced open-jawed to the rail bed. The train carried weapons made by uh, the Essen Works of Fritz Krupp, the German arms baron, including the largest artillery piece until uh, uh, until then constructed, capable of firing a one-ton shell, a one-ton artillery shell, with enough force to penetrate three feet of wrought iron plate. The barrel had to be carried on a specifically made car consisting of steel cradle uh, straddling two extra-long flat cars. An ordinary car had eight wheels. This combination had 32. A train uh, with more lighthearted cargo also headed for Chicago. This one leased by Buffalo Bill for his Wild West show. It carried a small army, 100 former U.S. cavalry soldiers, 97 Cheyenne, uh, Kiowa, Pawnee, and Sioux Indians, another 50 Cossacks and Hussars, 180 horses, 18 buffalo, 10 elk, 10 mules, and a dozen other animals. It also carried Phoebe Ann Moses of Tiffin, Ohio, a young woman with penchant for guns and excellent sense of distance. Bill called her Annie. The press called her Miss Oakley. Now, again, I want to tie that up right there because we did a little bit of a spotlight on Annie Oakley in June of this year on Quite Frankly. But that all there right there, a reminder to you and everybody else, Lindsay, uh, Wild Bill, I mean, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show, that was in a separate arena outside of the fair where they were attracting tens of thousands of people on their own. That was not even part of the fair. What was going on in Chicago during this couple of months is absolutely incredible. It's so amazing <laughs> just to think about that because it's funny too. The, again, the first time I read through, I, I just placed it inside of the fairgrounds and reading back through, you know, and you highlighted that. I was like, oh, yeah, it wasn't even a part of it officially. He wanted that island just like everyone else did. Theodore Roosevelt wanted it. Like everybody wanted the wooded island. And Olmstead was like, no, the, <laughs> nobody can have this island. And so he was like, fine. In fact, if you're not even going to let me in the fair at all, I'll just buy that place next to it and put this on and i feel like this was honestly because i've heard a lot about his um charity and like a lot of the places that he called home he would dump a lot of money into and and make people happy and so i wonder if a lot of this too was like giving keeping people employed and keeping people in who are part of a dying world basically right we're like transitioning over in fact this whole fair itself has that energy of like transitioning chicago itself from this kind of dirty kind of you know uh, i don't know hokey and and gross and immoral place into this white city so it's the white city to the city's black city and it even said on a page 210 um that this was their conscience it says uh with its gorgeous classical buildings packed with art its clean water and electric lights and its overstaffed police department the exposition was chicago's conscience the city it wanted to become Mm. And they talk about how people just looked down on Chicago and were like, you can't possibly rise up to this standard you've set to yourself. 
you know, and they call them, you know, backwater and, oh, their food's not going to be good enough. You're going to have pig's feet and your wine isn't going to be frappéed or whatever, like all of these criticisms that are so oh, I, silly. Oh, I love the, I love the frappé back and forth. I love yeah. that one. I love, I love Chicago's response to New York. I really did. Um, uh, well, what do you call them? A, a, a mouse colored what? A mouse colored ass, I think. <laughs> yeah, a mouse colored ass. Such an such an interesting insult, and that's also where we learn of this cookbook. And so I went, you know, because I had found that uh, all those pictures in the archive.org, and so I tried to find this cookbook there too, because it'd be so cool to read some of the entries in this cookbook. I couldn't find it, but it's um the Columbia Cookbook, uh, and who wrote this? Hollingsworth. And she had all this stuff in here. There was advice, how to fry a squirrel, yes. all of these things. And the last thing they mention is how to induce vomiting by using injections of tobacco into the anus through a pipe stem. Which, you know, <laughs> if, you're, if you swallowed some kind of a poison and you had to get it up quick, the one thing the I word. would not do is go and create a, a quickly create a tobacco serum to be injected up the anus. You know, it, it's just the, like, it, 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 it's just ridiculous. I was just looking for that now because um, there's other things in there that were really interesting. It was two, page 211. 211. She's all of these recipes, blackbird pie. Like, I, I thought that was a joke. That's a real recipe in this book. I want this book. I did find it on Abe Books, but I, I haven't ordered it. I don't know. I don't have room yet. Someday I will for a more elaborate library than I already have. Yep, but it's got to be a fascinating book. Yeah, that's it. Uh, recipes for scrapple, ox cheek, a baked calf's head, and tips for preparation <laughs> of raccoon, possum, yum, uh, snipe, plovers, and blackbirds. Um, how to broil uh, fricassee. What is a, what is fricassee? Stew or fry a squirrel. It was much more than just a cookbook. Hollingsworth built it as an overall guide to helping modern young housewives create a peaceful, optimistic, and sanitary household. Yeah, because there's nothing left in the house because you're eating it everything. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the, the wife was to set the tenor of the day. Quote, the breakfast, table uh, the breakfast table should not be a bulletin board for the curing of horrible dreams and depressing symptoms, but the place where a bright keynote of the day is struck. So uh, that's just, um, I love it. Oh, did you know? To induce cream to whip, add a grain of salt. To keep milk sweet longer, add horseradish. I would never imagine uh, adding horseradish to anything would make it sweet. <laughs> like what? Yeah. I think it would do something else. Who knows? Maybe I'm totally wrong. Perhaps. All right. So let's get into what the what the the audience and the book clubbers are finding right now. We're going into into the uh, the thread. This is from Robert Solario. Said the use of English is just wonderful. Some lines about Olmsted, page one sixty nine, which I should just say, Olmsted. I every Our time guy. this guy pops up, uh, Lindsay, I'm. It makes me feel like, I, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a hypochondriac. It's just turning me into a hypochondriac. I'm just like, this guy, how can his health can decline more every other page and him still be alive? <laughs> but this poor... I feel like it's that artist torture in him, though, you know? Like, yeah. everything is disappointing because he has such a beautiful vision of the world, and he just wants everything to be, like, perfect. He knows it can be 
but it actually can't be like no one can carry it out there's not enough people and he's not well enough there's not enough stuff and this and this is getting in the way and i feel like it just tortures him like i wonder how much of it is just self-induced like frustration that the world is nowhere near his level of excellence you know (laughs) i I, i'm 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 there with you it it has to be it has to be because he even got checked out by that british doctor who said that you know uh, i cannot find anything that is wrong with you technically mechanically biologically wrong with you so it has to be between the ears it must be stress it must be self-induced and uh, honestly anybody who's not under stress and being part of this project is not human you're 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 hh holmes all right so let's see the use of english just wonderful some lines about olmstead page 169 robert says when olmstead is blue the logic of his despondency is crushing and terrible love that yeah. Page 171, Olmsted speaks of ornamental flower beds as, quote, childish, vulgar, flaunting, and impertinent, out of place, and discordant. I love when he goes to Paris, and then when yeah. he goes he goes back to back to England, and he wherever he goes, he's just shitting on the landscape. <laughs> like, this, is, this bullshit? This is disgusting. <laughs> I, I, you know what? And I love it. I love yeah. it. I really do. <laughs> like, I trust this guy. Um Olmsted again, page 195, constitutional propensity. From the Tribune, page 174, quote, the wind seems to have a grudge against the world's fairs, gra- fair grounds, end quote. From the Chicago Journal, page 209, quote, the mayor will frappe, uh, will frappe it just enough so that the guests can blow the foam off the tops of the glasses without a vulgar exhibition of lung and lip power, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> Eric Larson is amazing. Page 187, quote, Mrs. Lawrence missed Emmeline in the way her effervescence and physical brightness lit the sullen walls of Holmes' building, end quote. Page 195, uh, weariness and sorrow freighted each page of, this, of his letter. Page 198, delay and heartfelt remorse were powerful tools with which he could fend off creditors. Uh, page 199, what he most looked for and was so very adept of sensing was the alluring amalgam of isolation, weakness, and need. Yeah, mm. I had that one underlined too. I was like, that, that's the apex psychopath's pre- way. Yeah, he's an apex predator. I'll throw a, I'll throw a quote, just um, pure language alone into the package here. On page 216, he's describing that mad Irishman who's getting more and more crazy and expecting his you know appointment from the mayor any day now and it says uh in that glacier of words grinding toward the 20th century prendergast's card was a single fragment of mica glinting with lunacy pleading to be picked up and pocketed (sighs) that's his little postcards he would send and for whatever reason this trude man had kept two of them probably because he was like what the hell is this like the way he just like crammed the sentences in and didn't care if they made sense i'm sure it, it was pretty funny i gotta say Lindsay, it wasn't so sad i have i uh, over over the last 15 years there's been one or two emails that i have starred and just um just said yeah. just in case just in case just, there's just in case there's an investigation after i'm dead uh i i, I don't know just, just i i just knew I knew the franticness of the frantic nature of the the postcards based on the descriptions alone and all that. And I know why someone like that Trude guy would keep it uh, because there's just there's an element there that is not like the rest. You know, it's not fangirling. There's something else there. It's the person being driven. Um, NJSF. 
Yeah, go ahead. No one ever goes to the police about any of it. No one goes to the police about any of those letters. No one goes to the police about even the Lawrences who were like, it doesn't make sense that Emmeline just took off and got married to someone else and just never said anything. <laughs> right? And they and they kept asking and they knew something is wrong and they still didn't go tell anyone. No one ever tells anyone. Well, at least at least in these in these pages, we started getting concerted efforts by families to actually go out there and hire uh, hire investigators. Like there are searches going on now. Um, and of course, because there's so many more murders probably happening that's even being covered in this book, there are many searches. Now, the fact that all of them are, he's, that Holmes is able to, is able to appease everybody with a smile and a handshake still, obviously that's going to run out, but for, but for now he's able to make great friends with all the investigators and the police and, and, uh, and, and all that, you know, the Prendercast gassed. That's a little bit more of a, I don't know, he, he's out there, and he's showing himself to the world. Um, I, I would say that the internal mechanics of Holmes is the same as Prendergast, but his, his exterior is hardened steel, and, uh, and there's, a, there's a little bit more method to his absolute madness. Um, yeah. Okay, NJSF says, Due to a promotion, I ended up getting the audiobook version. Uh, to go along with my ebook reading, and I realized the audiobook reading actually has quite a bit more descriptions that ended up getting cut out from the ebook copy. Apparently, the first vintage books edition from 20, 2004. As I listened to the audiobook, many of the additional segments that had the kind of imagery that is nice to appreciate on the book club, like in the cold-blooded fact, an additional description of the challenges of the cold, in particular by Burnham himself, between parts of the between. Parts of the grounds and George Ferris fought the cold with dynamite. So there's additional descriptions inside of certain audio book for okay, that's interesting. I know also in the ebook for me there was a lot missing. So in the now I'm reading the I read the ebook first. That's what I got first. And then when this finally arrived, I started reading the paper copy, and there's a lot more in the paper hard copy than in the ebook mm. for me. And it's a big book, it really is. It is pretty large. It, it's it's it uh, you know, uh but this, it's going by in a flash. It really is. Uh, let's see here. From Quite Frankly Producer, that's Krista. She said, there's so much rising action happening within this segment of the book that I had several pages of notes. What to even highlight? One of the things that stood out to me most was the Algerians getting a, the year wrong. They were, <laughs> actually, uh, they were actually correct, arriving in Chicago a year too soon. They were correct. I mean, this is supposed to be the 400th anniversary of, of, of Columbus discovering America in 1492. Uh, oh, the, true. The 1890, 1893 was the first rescheduling. Um, it's incomprehensible how this massive an event was planned on a global scale when the telephone had only just recently been invented. Travel was mostly limited to rail and sail. There were no modern conveniences such as email, text messages, etc. They were, uh, we are reading in uh, we are reading in awe of how the planners were able to erect the White City in such a short span of time. But I think that the global representation and variety of exhibits is even more astounding. How the people of late 19th century were able to communicate. Effectively to send legions of people, animals, priceless objects, heavy machinery, and more across the country and around the world to be convened for months on end absolutely blows my mind. As far as did you know goes, I did not know that the Pledge of Allegiance had direct connection to the 1893 World Fair per the internet. And um, 
On page 200, I found it fascinating to get a glimpse into Holmes' psyche. What he craved was possession and the power that it gave him. What he adored was anticipation, the slow acquisition of love, then life, and then finally the secrets within. And of course, the secrets within for Holmes were the secrets within the person's anatomy because every last body that apparently he was giving to this, uh, the articulation person that was stripping people down to skeletons, they were coming with the skin completely taken off of the entire upper torsos and faces taken apart. I mean, it's just, this is a, gosh, what, what how many ways are we going to describe him? <laughs> yeah. Know, I mean, he says he's a demon that he was born this way with the devil in him. So, I mean, God, I'm going to take his word for it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, indeed. I mean, people, people tell you who they are, right? <laughs> just take their, yeah. I will. What, what about, but what about his, um, his helpers like what's the the guy that he that starts with a p again what's his name pete benjamin pizza or pizzell pizzell yeah yeah so he's the guy who went off to get his alcoholism cured uh he's really the one that actually gets him gets familiar with the keely's gold cure stuff and he yeah. was the one that found emmeline and it was yeah. through his descriptions of emmeline that holmes was like i must meet her Oh, can you imagine? Now, my question is about people like Pitzel. Are these, are these like Igors? Do they know what Holmes is all about? And he has, uh, he has tested them for, you know, all the same moral, uh, I, you know. Yeah. I, I, you I, I know, psychopaths can gather these people who um, will convince themselves, even if they've seen red flags and whatever that that they don't or that they haven't seen these or that it's not what they think so it could be something like that where you're just sort of duped into it because he's going to make you feel like you're really special you're really important you're indispensable in fact you're also really amazing you're so good at what you do like all of these things people like to feel that way <laughs> like you know so you can get someone really tied up in your in your garbage just through that but i also have questions about him because his he was, wasn't he the articulator? Wasn't he the one that would, or would he just take it to the articulator? He would take it to the articulator. I mean, he, oh, okay. he had, but still he's I, taking bodies. Like he has to know what he's doing. Well, the articulator. So then I wonder if he is in on it. Like if he has some sort of sick pleasure with this too, or. Yeah. It, it's either he's strangely compartmentalized where I know that uh, the trunk that Emmeline was in, I think. He kept kept telling the moving people, be very careful with that trunk and all that other stuff. I don't know if Pitzel was part of that, but it, may, it really makes you wonder, is this a uh, is this a guy who is maybe has a screw loose? Is he a murderer himself? Or is he just a simpleton who is even more malleable than anybody else? And, uh, I mean, he's got plenty of vices. Um, Remember that guy, one of the guys who worked for him for just a little while and then left uh, in the previous section said, when I was with him, I was in his control always. <laughs> yes. And, you know, this is another thing where I think even if you do sort of have your wits about you and you are somewhat of a strong person, you still can be sort of like twisted and wrapped around because it it's just it's amazing to watch a psychopath work like they are exceptionally good at manipulating people and it's it's really even for the people who are watching for it sometimes hard to to see yeah i i know um uh here's one, uh, a couple of passages from njsf 
says, over this sequence of chapters, I gained a particular appreciation for Olmstead, his vision and idealism, uh, the, the health challenges, his management team challenges, uh, his trusted management, management manager dying, a poorly diagnosed appendicitis, the replacement basically being either a pushover or a bootlicker for Burnham. It was amazing to see how Murphy's Law came to effect just before the inauguration with the continuous rain. Here's a quote. Herbert decided to scout the grounds ahead of time. This is a this guy Herbert is a um, a British reporter. I remember this guy, and I actually I had set this aside in the book too. Herbert decided to scout the grounds ahead of time to get more detailed sense of the fair's topography. It was raining hard when he exited the carriage and entered Jackson Park. Lights blazed everywhere as shawls of rain unfurled around them. The ponds that had replaced Olmsted's elegant paths shuddered under the impact of a billion falling droplets. Hundreds of empty freight cards stood black against the lights. The whole scene was heartbreaking, but also perplexing. The fair's opening day celebration was set to begin the next morning then oh this makes me feel so oh all my worst dreams Lindsay, is being is going to a gig and being unprepared or uh, or being in a play and not knowing my lines this triggers all of those (laughs) those horrible anxieties (laughs) but he said the fair's opening day celebration was set to begin the next morning yet the grounds were clotted with litter and debris in a state stead wrote of quote gross incompleteness the next day the next, the next day. morning <laughs> and but, it's still just pouring rain but he goes on the njsf goes on to compliment it with this still the sheer grit determination and resources poured in is admirable the scene of the leaks in the roofs was amazing here's a quote but the rain continued and grew heavier uh, at night, it fell past the electric lights, uh, lights, uh, light, uh, what was it, uh, in sheets, so iron, in sheets. So, this, uh, shit, uh, let me do this again. You got this. <laughs> he put ion sheets in there, and then it screwed me all up. Sorry. NJ has a damn it. I'm having a hard enough time, NJ. At <laughs> night, at night, uh, it fell past the electric lights in sheets so thick that they were very nearly opaque. In ter- uh, it turned the dust to muck, into mud, which caused horses to stagger and wagons to stall. It found it and it found leaks. And soon a series of 200-foot cataracts began tumbling from the glass ceilings of the Manufacturers and Liberal Arts Building onto the exhibits below. Burnham and an army of guards converged on the building and together spent the night fighting the leaks. And, um, and we're talking about an army tens of thousands of people at a time and when people would he didn't care if there was labor disputes and they said they wanted more people they wanted more money they wanted he was fixing labor disputes along the way but many times if people were quitting in mass he's like i don't care uh chicago is full of people who are jobless right now that are skilled workers and they brought in more and more and like the bottomless amounts of money um bottomless funds at this point but it, it's just incredible what they were doing to the last minute uh, at least these people got paid, unlike anyone who ever worked for Holmes, it looks like. But I really, um, Olmstead, Olmstead has a special place in my heart in all of his attempts to try to make this beautiful. And then that rain is really, really sad. But I did love how um, he didn't go to this event where um, everybody was being honored. Burnham was being honored. I forget, they're in New York or somewhere. Uh, but he Olmstead had to go be in Asheville in North Carolina to do his work with the Vanderbilt's mansion. 
Um, but even though Olmstead wasn't there, Burnham stood up and told the guests, each of you knows the name and genius of him who stands first in the heart and confidence of American artists, the creator of your own and many other city parks. He it is who has been our best advisor, our constant mentor. In the highest sense, he is the planner of the exposition, Frederick Law Olmsted, an artist. He paints with lakes and wooded slopes, with lawns and banks and forest-covered hills, with mountainsides and ocean views. He should stand where I do tonight. And I love that because I know later it, they kind of imply that Burnham hurt Olmsted's feelings by saying maybe he wasn't doing a good enough job. But I don't know if he ever heard that. If I heard that, I would feel honored. And I'm glad that he honored him because I feel like he deserves it. Yes. And I also love that he ordered 800 ducks and geese, 7,000 pigeons, and for the sake of accent, a number of exotic birds, including four snowy egrets, four storks, two brown pelicans, and two flamingos. Now, he, now, now, now this is my thing about this, Lindsay. I don't understand the 7,000 pigeons. No. Uh, anybody who is who lives anywhere near a big city, uh, or even a small city, I don't understand ordering thousands of pigeons. They are flying rats. They shit on everything. It, they make they make statues impossible. I, so I just don't get that. Um, now, as far as the storks, egrets, things like that, I think that is wonderful, especially with the, what the topography, everything that they have created, what Olmsted created, to just just add a little bit more, animated a little bit more with life. But um, I guess that there's something about these about birds that you need to understand about what their limitations are for just leaving the grounds altogether. Like yeah. maybe if they just find some, if you put them in, plant them in a place like this, they're just going to find a home and make this their stomping grounds, and they won't leave. Like it's almost like with Jurassic Park. I always wondered, oh well, when they when they go and they uh, clone all the pterodactyls and bring it back to life, what what do they do with that? It's just gonna fly off the island, and then of course in like the subsequent movies, you see that they had the pterodactyls in a in a big domed cage, so they didn't fly off the island, but. Um, I, are they just very homebound species well, that once you introduce them to a place, they stay? They are very homebound species. I don't know how you get them to associate a place with their home, though. I would have thought you had to have them hatched there, mm -hmm. but I, I don't know. But I cannot, I can't understand, even though I think you're absolutely right about why pigeons, for so many reasons, they do uh, that murmuration, like they fly together as a group often, and they do kind of fancy aerobatics like in, in on mass. And so maybe he was going for that effect, like having these birds that would all swarm together around, because that is, that is pretty cool to watch. Uh, and pigeons are one of the birds that do that. Maybe he was going for that, painting the sky, because a lot of those other birds are gonna just sit in the water and walk around the grounds. Uh, you know, uh, Nancy Nelson in the chat room just said, um, and I don't know if that is just she's responding to somebody else. She said, interesting that many of the pigeons in Chicago today may have ancestors from the fair. Oh, I mean, that's they, so cool. <laughs> it really they, they They could be. And I don't know what the average. Uh, hey, Siri, what is the average lifespan of a pigeon? Hey, Siri, what is the average lifespan of a pigeon? Average dove bird's lifespan, uh, any, uh, 10 years in the wild and 17 years in captivity. So it could be... What would uh, that be, 12 generations? 12, at least 12 to 15 generations. Oh. I, I mean, just you just don't know, but it could. Uh, that's it. That's, that's, that's interesting. That really is. Um, yeah, I'm glad we brought I, that up. I also liked... Um, you know, back to Buffalo Bill again, his Wild West show, 
he had this thing that was pretty cool where he all right visitors entered this is on page 222 visitors entered through a gate that featured columbus on one side under the banner of pilot of the ocean the first pioneer and buffalo bill on the other identified as pilot of the prairie the last pioneer i felt like that was pretty poetic for like a wild west show and again that that era is like dying and, and nearly gone at this point and so it's probably i don't know it just struck a sort of sad sweet somber note there and it was pretty beautiful i know but it, it is also pretty incredible for everybody out there who's just like you know uh, social justice warriors we want all of the we want all of the nfl team names to be devoid of any kind of uh, native american reference or anything like that here you have buffalo bill rolling into town with this massive army of people and we're talking about actual army cavalry we're talking about that we're, we're talking about hundreds of indians that are actually on board and they're being paid uh, voluntarily to uh to 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 have the wagon circled and come in and attack settlers and have wild bill uh, or buffalo bill come on in and save the day that every day they're part like this is they're, like they're, they're playing the role that they're actually lending lending themselves over to this and it's all uh it's just our 21st century sensibilities are so fragile we are so fragile you think about everything that the richest men in the world are dealing with the most incredible uh, uh, health complications that you think that they would have the best of the best. Um, everything is poisoned. All the water is terrible. There's just there's just death all around you. We are so fragile that we are complaining that the the, the Washington football team it was named the Redskins. This this is what we have. <laughs> this is what we have you know, taken as the as the the uh, the the cause du jour. It's just incredible. Yeah, we have we have it way too good if these are the things we're complaining about. Where I'm like, you know, I think when you need a recipe for blackbird pie, that's when maybe you can start complaining about your life. Like when you have a recipe for how to cook or fricassee or whatever squirrel, um, then I think you could complain. But otherwise, like, I don't think you really understand how good we have it here. And that whole native thing really bothers me. You know, again, I think that's part of buffalo bill's kindness is that he got as many native people as he could and gave them money and gave them work and gave them like travel and all this things um because he wanted to he wanted to help and however he could and, and to get people in and so you know of course they were down to do that they're like yeah that's that's awesome thank you for this opportunity but we would look at that and think it's so oppressive well what about the people actually doing it they didn't think it was oppressive it sounds like and it's the same with this uh these team names when i worked on a reservation the people there, I came in with that sort of leftist, like victim mentality. And I was like, oh, it's so awful that we've got all these teams named after you. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? They were like proud of that. Like that's honoring our warrior spirit. Like we're warriors. And these are the, these are the teams we love the most. And I was like, oh, I mean like, cause I never asked. So how would I know? I know. So, you know, like maybe we should ask some people and find out what they actually feel. Um, in but, fact, you know, now I feel like everyone's been trained into victimhood, so who knows? What well, I know, I know, but, the, you know, I, I just read this last week. I was going to save it for a Friday night uh, read on my show, but there is a, a pretty significant Native American group that is now, they want to put the screws to Washington to, to change it back from the commanders to the Redskins. They want their Redskins back. These are Native Americans that are like, how dare you? Yeah. How dare you? Listen, I'm a Cowboys fan, so Cowboys and Redskins, they don't, 
It's not a good thing. Uh, <laughs> but, but I always, I loved, I, that's an awesome name. And there's so many high schools around here that used to be Redskins, even up in Newtown and things like that, where all my cousins played and stuff. It's um, it's just good stuff. It really is. Now, I have a couple more over here. Bethel, Bethely, or Bethel says, I caught myself humming the tune that Larson had put on that page. The fact that Bloom came up with such a catchy tune that is still known today made me laugh. I'm sure it drove Bloom crazy that he didn't have enough to copyright it. Or, uh, well, he well he hadn't thought to copyright it, yes. Uh, even the money, uh, even the, ever the moneymaker, Bloom turned a problem into a huge profit when the Algerians arrived early. He then uh, had them entertaining before the fair even opened, which t- in turn gave him an early profit. Bloom was a true entrepreneur and one of the, my favorite characters in the book, even though he plays a small part. On Holmes, it is hard to fathom how devious he was and how trusting the people were that had relationships with him. Many later called and uh, recalled an uneasiness that they had when talking with him i wondered what actually came first in their minds were they uneasy at the time or was it all hindsight after his crimes were exposed i don't think um i think hindsight plays a little bit of a clarifying role in this but it seems like everybody we've talked to so far there was just something there was a suspicion there was something not right that they constantly had to fend off um, and even uh, Emmeline toward the end there, well, was it her that was talking about every time that the, the, uh, the hotel came into frame, uh, it, it just, there was a deadness to it. There was yeah. just, and it was, it was a deadness that went beyond the, um, the haphazard way that it was constructed. There was just, uh, an energy that it just saturating the because it is already a house of death. So. Yeah. Yeah, who knows how many people were, you know, hidden under the dirt. They even implied that at the beginning when he was just sort of digging down into the ground and it was all sort of bare bones. Someone went down there. I think it was the gas guy to try to help him make it into a crematorium on accident. Um, I think he sort of implied like there was piles of stuff like off in the corners and like the dirt was mounded in certain areas and you kind of get that feeling like there's literal remains perhaps or what does he call it? Material. Material. Material placed around the the basement. So I can't imagine how dark the energy and um, how awful it would feel to be there, especially with the poor construction. But then by the end here, he's got it uh, advertised in the papers, right? Uh, in the yellow paper, or in the classifieds, I guess we call them. Uh, and he says uh, it's called the World's Fair Hotel now. So now it has the official sounding name just to draw in even more people. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's a World's Fair Hotel. Just uh, ho- hopefully gets a couple more lost piggies to come on in there. And, and, uh, and it's, it's just another slaughterhouse in town, if you really think about it. Um, so I have one last one over here from Lin Tin Tin. It says, I looked up photos of the fairground site and buildings and tried to find photos of the grounds and exhibits. Couldn't find very many, and they all look the same. Interesting explanation is that no private photography was allowed. Well, no. Private photography, uh, not so much that perhaps it wasn't allowed, but it would be very rare thinking, you know, as far as, you know, what what it took to actually show up with a camera and and do this stuff. But there were more than one major photographer that was on there. And we found wonderful resources now uh, outside of the sealed boxes that we know that was up in uh, Chicago Public Library. Uh, it's not going to show up in, in image searches around around the internet, no matter what engine you use. 
it is it requires a little digging they're in pdf form they have to be uh digitally taken out checked out like a library book we have plenty of stuff and i think um Lindsay, I, I mean, I know that you're not going to be on the show on the 30th. So may, I don't know what you think about maybe doing it on Tuesday the 29th instead that week. I would love to do that, yeah. Because I would love to share these pictures. And I have the link uh, in that forum people can click on, but I can't post it in the YouTube chat because YouTube deleted me as a human. Oh. So I'm, I'm not allowed to chat with people. Well, but... <laughs> I, I think... I think that the last week that we do this, instead of Wednesday the 30th, maybe we'll do it Tuesday the 29th so you can be here. And aside from our closing thoughts and analysis of the last chapters that we're reading, we should definitely spend at least 20 minutes going through as many pictures as we can so we can just absorb it all. It would be really, really fun. I would love to do that. Let's do it. I also want to just point out that the la- at least the, the, it's not just the last two people who posted on the thread, but many other people, too. I love, love, love seeing the join date of people on the forum being August 2023. I love that so many of you are not only reading the book with us, but that you have gone and you've joined the forum because beyond book club, the forum, I, I just want to see everybody hanging out there and uh, and and debating and researching together and coming up with wonderful topics of conversation. This has been really great. Um, Lindsay, you have anything else you want to add before we assign reading for next week? I'll just go back to how woefully unprepared they seem for the opening, which is tomorrow in the timeline of the book. So we're about to see what happens. The president has already arrived uh, under much fanfare and all of his fancy troops and everything that have come with him. Uh, or tycoons, I guess, princes, statesmen, all these people are ready for this to open, and all of this rain has flooded everywhere, and nothing seems ready. So that that's where we're at right now. <laughs> so and, it's a good cliffhanger. <laughs> and what wonderful pacing we've had so far. The fact that we are going into week four here, and we're starting with part three in the White City. It is opening day. <laughs> I mean, this is great. So from opening day, let's go and read. I just, I, I calculated about 75 pages um, from opening day, let's go to page 308. So 308 is the last page to read. You're staring the new chapter, Freaks, in the face. So we are going to be going from page 235 to 308. And there you have it. That's what we'll do for session four. And with that... Um, Thank you, everybody in the chat room. It's been wonderful to have you here. And, Lindsay, I have really enjoyed every, every uh, night with you so far. Oh, I have, too. Thank you so much, Frank. It's awesome to be here. And your audience, of course, is always amazing. All right. Well, Lindsay, <laughs> well, uh, when are you going to be live next? Let everybody know how to uh, to find you and how to keep up with all of your work. Um, I have my supporters-only show on Thursday nights, so tomorrow will be for supporters. If you want to become a supporter, you can be on Rockfin. If you're already on Rockfin for Frank or anyone else you love, then you can come hang out tomorrow. Every Monday through Thursday, I live stream at 7 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Eastern on that channel, rockfin.com slash rogueways. And you can also go to my site if you want to check out everything else I do. I have books. I have all kinds of things. I do one-on-one healing, work with people, and more. Uh, So that's at rogueways.org. And otherwise, on Sundays, I do Day Zero with Charlie Robinson, who you did Shoeless Joe with, I think, last month, um, and a couple other cool guys. And so on Sundays at 5 p.m. Eastern, we go live on my channel there on Rockfin. And, of course, it's also available on podcasts anywhere podcasts are. And so that's 
that's my stuff. I hope to see everybody there. I hope th I hope people show up too. I really do. Yeah. And and everybody in the chat room, uh, I thank you for all the the very warm reception. They love you, Lindsay. They love this book, and I knew it was going to be a really powerful combination. So until next week, you know, uh, uh, email us. Stay in touch. Uh, get. I'll make sure that I publish the latest thread so you can start talking with each other and discussing the pages uh, on your own. And uh, we will reconvene here next Wednesday. Be good, ladies and gentlemen. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.